All right, everybody, welcome back to episode two of the Jaws versus Jurassic Park podcast on the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. D, what do you think? Uh, n- now, eventually, do plan to have dinosaurs on, on your dinosaur podcast, right? Uh, hello? Hello? Yes? I really do hate that man. <laughs> That's not true. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us again. We are here to talk about sharks and dinosaurs, dinosaurs and sharks. Tonight, let's look at the cast and crew of each of these movies, who they thought about bringing in, who they ended up hiring, and then what it meant to them. All right, let's start with Jaws, since it's the first one here. Sounds good. Initially, Peter Benchley went to Spielberg and said, I've got an idea. I think we should hire Paul Newman as Quint, Robert Redford as Chief Brody, and John Voight for Hooper. And then they told him, uh, here's the deal. The shark is the star of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, Spielberg had all kinds of guys in mind for these different parts. And of all of the people that he had in mind, the only one, the only first choice that he actually got was the mayor. <laughs> That's right. So Murray Hamilton is his name. And he was the choice that Spielberg had for the mayor that actually came through. I mean, that guy's perfect as the mayor. He is perfect. He nails it. Yeah. He has that sweet coat that has the anchors on it that I'm <laughs> a couple of jealous them. of. Yeah. Now he had been in Anatomy of a Murder and he had been the cuckold husband in The Graduate, if you've ever seen that. And he's this weird scene with him having a drink with Dustin Hoffman, who's having an affair with Mrs. Robinson. He's Mr. Robinson. There you But he is the perfect, slimy, bad decision-making, but going to push my bad decisions on you, Mayor, for this movie. Fantastic. (laughs) And later, he he does a great job, in my opinion, of, you know, he was all gung-ho on keeping the beaches open for economic reasons. And then when there's an attack at the beach, he does a great job of sort of emotionally saying, my kids were on that beach too. Yeah. I mean, the part where he's, he convinces people to go out and swim. I mean, why, why would you, why would you do that? Okay. So the part of Chief Brody. This is interesting. Steven Spielberg wanted several different people for this part. One person in particular really wanted it. Charlton Heston really wanted the part of Chief Brody. Yeah. And Spielberg was like, no way, dude. No. Yeah. Heston had been in these parts where he was always the conquering hero. Like you just knew he was going to win. Right. And Spielberg didn't want people in the theater to, you know, just be relaxed knowing, hey, Heston's got this. Right. Roy Scheider is every man. He is the representative of the audience. I'm caught between a sticky situation. I've got my job responsibilities. I've got my family responsibilities. I got the shark that's screwing up everything. And I'm scared, but I got to do my job, you know? And it was interesting that Spielberg had never met Roy Scheider until he went to a party. So Spielberg wanted to offer the role of Chief Brody to Robert Duvall. But he turned him down. He saw the movie as a potential phenomenon, but he was worried it might make him too famous. 
Steven Spielberg was specific about, I don't want somebody that's too big and too famous because he had this idea that Brody needed to be vulnerable and somebody that the audience could identify with. But he had talked to five or six actors and he couldn't find the right person for the job. And so he's at this party at Andrea Eastman's house, who was the casting director for The Godfather. And Roy Scheider also happens to be there and several other Hollywood folks. And Roy Scheider overhears Spielberg talking to some writer about the scene where the shark comes out of the water and he kind of becomes fascinated and then you know parties you move on you you have your drinks and then he sees Spielberg just kind of sitting alone by himself and so he just goes over and sits down and he's like you know hey what's up what's wrong and he just Spielberg just spills all of his depression and anxiety about you know talking to all these actors he can't find the right person to be the to be his chief Brody and be the everyman and finally after listening very quietly and patiently for a while Roy Scheider goes what about me I'm an actor I would love to be in Jaws and bingo bongo there you go yep go to the right party that's awesome that's awesome I love that story <laughs> so chief Brody is Roy Scheider and and he had been in the French Connection uh, later, he did all that jazz and Blue Thunder, and he was on a he was on a series a little bit later on where it was kind of a deep sea series. Yeah, Sequest, man. Yeah, yeah. You, that was on for about five episodes, and I remember I was all <laughs> excited about it. And then, yeah, Star Trek for the water or something. Yes, <laughs> he had been in a few things, but he really found his way as a cop. He was in Clute. He was in, and then he was in the French Connection, and just something about him said cop and that's why he's the chief of police in this one for matt hooper the studio wanted jeff bridges or jan michael vincent or timothy bottoms and like we said before john voigt was uh, considered but george lucas was the one who said hey how about ricky Right, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, the other guys were more pretty boys, which yeah. was kind of the way that he was, that the character of Hooper was portrayed in the book, that he was kind of this handsome, young, just out of college kind of uh, dashing figure. And obviously, Richard Dreyfus is not that kind of guy, especially not in this movie. Yep. This is really interesting to me, the, the process of the hiring of Richard Dreyfus, okay? Now, Spielberg calls him and says, hey, uh, I've got this project I'm working on called Jaws, and I, I need this guy, Hooper, who's a shark expert and all this stuff. Would you like to play him? And Richard Dreyfus says, no way, man. No. And he's, Sounds like a great movie to watch. Yeah. Sounds like a terrible movie to be a part of. That's what he said. He said – Well, he was right about that too, though. Right? He, was, he was absolutely <laughs> right. So he kept asking him, right? He was very emphatic, like, no, I'm not doing this. And he's like, right. how about we all say it at the same time? Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> I'm not doing this. But yeah, kind of started to be a little bit of a D about it. Yeah. Yeah. But he had recently started a movie called The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Yeah. It was his first starring role where he was the yep. lead man. And when he sat to watch the premiere, he watched himself on screen and thought, <laughs> I suck. Yeah. He, he thought, thought he was terrible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I am never going to get cast in anything again. I better go take this thing before news gets out that I did this terrible, <laughs> he, terrible performance. <laughs> he immediately called Spielberg and begged for the part of Matt Hooper, <laughs> yeah. which was funny. And when he showed up, he showed up to talk it over with them. He had that scraggly beard and those uh, rimless glasses and the little stocking cap. And they were like, that's it. You got it. Don't change a thing. Joel Gray wanted to play the part of Hooper, too. I don't know if you uh, are familiar with him, but... Oh, yeah. Joel Gray was in Cabaret. For those interested in the 80s movies, he was in Remo Williams. And then the third main role he had to fill was Quint. The one guy that Spielberg had in mind for this part was Lee Marvin. But Lee Marvin 
he was fishing off of the coast fishing. of Mexico. Yeah. And they're like, well, we want to talk to you about fishing, sort of. And he's like, when I'm on vacation, I'm on vacation. Uh-huh. And he refused to talk to them. So like, well, guess we got to move on without Lee Marvin. He also offered it to Sterling Hayden. For those of you who don't know Sterling Hayden, if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, he's the American general who kind of puts everything into action to cause the destruction of the world, who only drinks vodka because of fluoridation of the water. He's that guy. The producers of the show said, well, you know, what about Robert Shaw? They had just worked with him on The Sting and yeah. said, you know, he he can be a little ornery, but he's a good actor. He's he's Shakespearean. He's a professional. What do you yeah. think about him? And uh they, they decided to go with him. You know, we talked about them starting the movie without having things done. Nine days before they started filming, they still didn't have the parts of Quint or Hooper cast. It's crazy. Nine days, which means for those actors, hey, you're hired. See you in less than a week and a half to start production. <laughs> Here's your copy of the Can script. Go memorize it. <laughs> yeah. So, and, but even, I mean, we know there wasn't even a script. There was not a complete, there was multiple scripts that were completed, but they weren't scripts that they were going to use. They were yeah. working on new lines every night. Spielberg and uh, Carl Gottlieb were working on fresh dialogue that people would have to learn that next day. So I guess that's part of the production. Robert Shaw is an interesting choice for Quint because he had kind of been in his early career, a more of a dashing leading man type of guy, yeah. swashbuckling type of guy. And then he was like, maybe one of the best villains for James Bond in From Russia With Love. He was like the evil James Bond. I mean, he was awesome. But he's now got to play the part of this kind of crotchety old man, you know? It's weird. And I, I looked at this... He's only 47 when he was filming this. I'm thinking he's I'm thinking he's in his 60s and he's 47 years old. He was doing a part unlike any part that he had done before. And so he was looking for kind of inspiration on how to play the part and one of the guys that he looked to was one uh, was a guy named Craig Kingsbury who was just a local fisherman but the guy that they cast as Ben Gardner and in Gardner's head. Um, <laughs> but this is an interesting story. I just got, I just picked this one up today. So when they were there and they were putting together like the boat and stuff like that, they're putting together other boats, making all the props for the set, some spray paint that they were spray painting, like blew over to the neighboring house. And as it turned out, there was a crotchety old angry man who lived in that house and his name's Lynn Murphy. And so he, you know, you, you've just blown, paint over the guy who you shouldn't cross and at any point in life. And so he goes and balls them out. And then somehow, because I guess he's the local mechanic and knows how machines work, they're like, hey, could you help us out with this boat stuff? And then, <laughs> hey, could you help us out with this shark? And so he becomes like a guy on the set who's like teaching them how to do stuff. Yeah. Like he, there have been several actors who have said, had it not been for Lynn Murphy, the movie Jaws might not have come out and he's gotten like no credit. He's not credited in the credits of the movie. He's nowhere. It just, just, just happens to be this old carmudgeonly guy. And I looked at him and he was in his forties too. I guess I, I, I'm just thinking, I think I, I thought I had like 20 years before I could become a carmudgeon. I guess I could do it right now. Yeah. And so Robert Shaw is having trouble with this line on the reading. He's talking to Spielberg and as they're talking, Len Murphy is over yelling at the crew about stop doing what you're doing. You're messing everything. And he's just like yelling at them because of how stupid they are. And Steven Spielberg goes, you hear that? Read it like that. And that was the inspiration for Shaw for the rest of the movie for Quinn. That's awesome. <laughs> so those three roles are hugely important. Obviously those are the three main roles of the movie. Right. Right. Except I would argue 
the most important hire in the cast was Lorraine Gary as the role of Ellen Brody. And let me tell you why. That's not who I thought you were going to say, but okay, go for it. Okay. She was the most important hire because she was the wife of Sid Sheinberg, who was Steven Spielberg's boss. So he and her and her husband had skin in the game here. Right. The fact that she had a important role in this movie meant that he was less likely to fire Spielberg and shut it down. Yeah. Yeah, probably so. And when you're a 27-year-old yeah, no. director and you hire your boss's wife, it's never a bad thing. Right. And you could, you know, you can say that maybe she had she had preferential treatment or whatever, but she did a great job. She did a great job. I thought she was a perfect wife in this one. I mean, she acted well. She it was very real. You just she was very believable as the displaced wife of a New York family who's now in Amity. So who I thought you were going to say as the most important casting was... I'm on pins and needles here. I can't wait to, for you to tell me who in the world this is. Susan Baclanine. You know what? She was pretty daggum important now that you she mentioned it. She was vital because that first scene, if you don't sell that first scene, the rest of the movie is like, meh, right? Yeah. And that first scene is all her. It is all her. Let's talk about Susan Bath- No, you're exactly right. Let's talk about her for a second. So she was a competitive swimmer and a stunt uh-huh. woman, not yep. really an actress. They knew what had to happen in the scene. And so they had three very important things that they had to consider, right? They had to have somebody who was tough, who could handle the physical demands of the scene. They had to have somebody who was beautiful because it was supposed to be a girl that this guy is going to be chasing after. And they had to have somebody who was willing to get naked. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susan Bethany. Yeah. And so she, she pointed out, she was like, you know, I, so they do a casting call, you know, yeah. they're just, it's just like, Hey, this part exists. Here's what we got. And I'm sure part of it was, Hey, we need beautiful, tough, willing to get naked. And so she comes in and before she goes in, she thinks, Oh, they always make you take your clothes off. And I'm like, you haven't been in that many movies, <laughs> at least not ones that are on IMDb. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how many auditions you had that you had to take your clothes off for. It was the seventies. It was a different time. Anyway. Right. So she decides instead of, you know, giving them that option, what I'll do is I will stick a naked picture of me in my portfolio folder. And when she, uh, she went to the audition, she went and talked to Bill Gilmore, showed him that picture. And he said, when he saw the picture, all he could do was blush. Right. So he went to Steven Spielberg with the picture and said, Hey Steve, here you go. What do you think of this? And Steven's like, well, yeah, but can she act? And he's like, Steven, look at this picture again. <laughs> Come on. Come on. So she was very important yeah, so though. You're that- right. She screamed her oh, lungs out too, and she she made that scene super believable. She was screaming like she was dying, you know. They well, the way that they rigged her up, they had ropes on either side of her. I mean, you see her like moving one way through the water and the other way because it has to be like this non-linear movement through the water, like a fish would do. And what they did was like they had guys with rope and three hundred pound weights and this thing wrapped around her underneath the water, and she was really just being thrown back and forth. And there was uh, there was rumors that went around like that she's screaming like that because her ribs were breaking, but that's uh, apparently yeah. false, you know. Urban but myth. She, yeah. she did a fantastic job. And then when they had to go back in and put in more sound for the scene, she had to scream while Steven Spielberg was pouring water down her throat, which, you know, now is called waterboarding. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> Against, against the Geneva Convention. <laughs> Steven Spielberg is guilty of a war crime. 
So that pretty much is the cast of Jaws, if you don't include Bruce the Shark. Let's switch over to Jurassic Park and talk about who was almost cast in these roles. All right, so Spielberg now has a little bit more clout in Hollywood, and so he can A little bit. You you think? Yeah. (laughs) A little. Just a tiny bit. Hey, I've directed... The Sugarland Express. <laughs> hey, I've directed every single great movie of the 80s. Seriously. So here's, here's who was considered for these roles, all right? So the role of Dr. Alan Grant went to Sam Neill, does a great job. Or He had been in The Hunt for Red October. He was later in The Piano and Event Horizon. He was an Australian actor. All right, here's who was considered for the role of Dr. Alan Grant. So just off the top of his head, Steven Spielberg was like, mm, how about Harrison Ford? I think that was a little bit overkill for that role you don't Uh need indiana jones you just need dr grant so he considered harrison ford he considered kurt russell right he offered the role to william hurt who didn't even read the script and just said no i'm not interested in dinosaurs yeah william hurt's kind of famous for turning stuff down yeah i'm not a fan of his i don't really like him okay and then finally they thought about richard dreyfus that would have been interesting so that's who was considered for the role of dr alan grant now then dr ellie sattler is kind of like the susan sarandon role in bull durham they considered a ton of actresses for that role. They looked okay. at Robin Wright, Gwyneth Paltrow, Julianne Moore, Helen Hunt, Terry Hatcher, Elizabeth Hurley, Sherilyn Flynn, and then Christina Applegate was considered, but some people think that they were looking at her for Dr. Sattler or maybe like an older version of Lex. It's kind of okay. a strange deal. She was young at the time. She was like 20. Right. But they ended up going with Laura Dern, who had been in Wild at Heart, and you may know her from The Last Jedi. I was going to ask you about that one. <laughs> How'd you feel about her performance in The Last Jedi, Jason? <laughs> we don't talk about The Last Jedi. Uh, and her purple hair. We don't talk about The Last Jedi. Have you seen Wild at Heart? No. It's it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird. It's a David Lynch movie, of course. And David Lynch makes the weirdest movies. He's got some weird stuff. He really does. And, and it's it, it can be amazing and weird, and then it can be just plain old weird. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the role of Dr. Malcolm, this is where it gets super interesting. Yeah. Spielberg says that he wanted Jeff Goldblum. He offered Jeff Goldblum and he got Jeff Goldblum. And so that really is the end of it, except listen to these guys that the casting director wanted. All right. Okay. So Michael Keaton, Michael J. Fox, Johnny uh, Depp. Yeah. Michael J. Fox. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's weird. Okay. Go ahead. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Ted Danson, okay. Steve Gutenberg, <laughs> Tom <Okay>. Selleck. <laughs> A baby. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and uh, just offer everybody a three-minute baby. But here, the person who did the best in the audition, this will blow you away. You ready for this? Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was a fraction of a hair away from getting the role of Dr. Ian Malcolm. That's crazy. I think he would have been great. I think that that would have been cool. It would have changed yeah. the trajectory of his career. Right after this, he did Ace Ventura and The Mask and Dumb and Dumber, and he's off mm-hmm. down that path. And I'm thankful yeah. for that. I enjoy those movies. But uh, it would have been interesting at least to see him as <clears throat> that kind of role. Yeah, but uh, Jeff Goldblum, like, he set the mold for the sexy geek, right? Yeah. I mean, was was nerddom ever as sexy as Jeff Goldblum was in Jurassic Park? I don't think so. He got, got buffed so. up. and yeah, yeah, and he's supposed to be like a math nerd. And he comes and he's all tan and got his long black curly hair and all flirting with the ladies and touching their hands <laughs> and stuff and rubbing their hair and cheek in a weird kind of creepy way, but still somehow sexy because he's so pretty. <laughs> all right. The role of John Hammond. When they were casting this, they wanted somebody to be a dark Walt Disney. 
I thought that was really cool. So yeah, the character in the book was certainly a darker, much, much, much darker version of uh, John Hammond than than it is portrayed in the movie. Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? It may be the only book I've ever read where I think the movie is better than the book. Did you see the movie first? No. That's impressive. I just think that the movie was streamlined and it's just action like a bullet. Right. And there's a whole lot of chaos theory and sort of scientific BS that I didn't care about. Right. And, and Spielberg has got a knack for doing that. I don't think he obviously did it with ready player one, which we saw together, but we need to talk about, um, yeah, that's a, that's a shame, but anyway, later later podcast, uh, later podcast. Right. But just to speak about that on jaws, you know, after he got done reading the book, Spielberg said, I kind of wanted the shark to win. Like yeah. nobody, no character in the book was actually likable. That's why the film is really nothing like the book at all. He even told Dreyfus, he's like, don't read the book. Okay, just don't read it. That makes me want to the, read the book. Like yeah. I want to I want to order Jaws and, and check it out. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The role for John Hammond, you know who he originally wanted? Sean Connery. Sean Connery. And I got to say, I, I think he'd have been awesome. He would I, awesome. I, I really do. If I just imagine him with his... What's the jungle movie that he was in? Doctor something or other? Uh, Medicine Man. Medicine Man. Oh, yeah. The Medicine Man. That's right. So I just imagined him with his Medicine Man, long white hair and a ponytail, you know, in his khaki vest saying, welcome to Jurassic Park. I would be like, yeah, that's awesome. When this guy does it, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's a little cheesy. You're a little, little round, cheesy guy. But <laughs> Doctor, sorry, so, to, to, to blaspheme Richard Attenborough, I mean, he did a good job. But He did. Uh, yeah. Sean Connery would have been cool. I think, he would have, I think he would have made a better, like, I'm a billionaire developing a park kind of character. But I don't think he would have been as good as the lovable old grandfather that he also has to be in this movie. That's true. That's true. So Richard Attenborough had been in The Great Escape and A Bridge Too Far. But he had pretty much been a director. So he had directed the movie Gandhi, and he was in the middle of finishing Chaplin, which stars Robert Downey Jr., which is a great movie. But he was pretty much a director. And when Spielberg called him, he's like, well, I'm in post-production for Chaplin. He said, don't worry. We'll work around your schedule. If you want to come back and shoot this part, we'll let you have the time you need to finish Chaplin. And so he said, great, got me in. The part of Muldoon, they they hired a guy named Bob Peck. Shoot her, that guy. (laughs) <laughs> clever girl, girl. yeah <laughs> he did a good job they they considered tom sizemore yeah i can kind of see that yeah i really feel like that they didn't do that character justice in this movie i felt like he could have been way more than he was in this movie yeah he didn't do a whole lot he may- and he's i mean he's supposed to be the australian like outback safari hunter man the great <laughs> white hunter right and this guy he's okay he's just not i don't know he's just not at the I very beginning like under his more, watch yeah. a construction worker gets eaten by a uh, raptor right you have the ability to make dinosaurs from mosquitoes but you can't get a cage that locks come on (laughs) (laughs) okay so for the part of lex ariana richards was hired based mostly because she could scream really loud and really long yeah and she did a great job at that she did she's a good Um, screamer okay the part of tim was played by joseph mazzello and he had actually auditioned for a part in spielberg's previous movie hook but they thought he was too young but when the, this part came along, they thought he'll be just the right age. And they they actually flip-flopped Lex and Tim's age from the book. Yeah. Tim is the older brother and the Who computer Who is supposed nerd. to be, yeah, computer hacker. 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 I'm a hacker. I'm a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> okay. And then Mr. Arnold, played by Samuel L. M. F. Jackson. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the blood-sucking lawyer? Are we going to talk about Martin Fierro? Sure. 
So he got cast, obviously, in, I mean, one of the most memorable roles, and not necessarily for his performance, but because he's the first guy to get eaten by T-Rex. Love it. And how awesome was that? I was listening to the soundtrack show on Jurassic Park. Shout out to David W. Collins. But he's talking about the first time he's <laughs> he saw the movies. Like when it comes to that part, the T-Rex eats the attorney. A guy in the middle row stands up and just starts shouting, how the f*** did they do that? And it's just, <laughs> just back down. <laughs> so, yeah, Martin Fierro. He, if you've seen Plane Drains and Automobiles, he's got a hilarious little bit part as the motel clerk. And it's, it's great. Do you have $32 and a watch? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally we, we can't do this without talking about dennis nedry who is played by wayne knight spielberg actually newman. <laughs> newman that's right spielberg watched the movie basic instinct and really liked this guy in basic instinct and he stayed and he waited for the credits to roll and then he was like okay that guy right there Wayne Knight, write that down. And that's how he got the part. That's great. And he was perfect. He was a perfect little slime ball on this one too. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> he really does. I, I like that line where they're like, find Dennis Nedry, check the vending machines. <laughs> All right. So that's going to wrap it up for our discussion on the cast and crew. Let's dive into the production of both of these movies. Ready? Flipping back to Jaws. Production started in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. It was used as Amity Island primarily because even 12 miles out to sea, there was a sandy bottom that was only 30 feet down, and they needed an area that they could get the mechanical shark, and you couldn't see a coastline. Right, and when the mechanical shark sinks to the bottom, you don't have that far to go. (laughs) Which he did all the time. Right. (laughs) So the big story about production in Jaws was that the shark, the star of the movie, hardly ever worked. Right. The shark is not working. (laughs) The shark is not working. (laughs) This movie had so many production problems. It's really interesting to me. Not only did they pull off a complete movie, but they managed to make an incredible movie for the ages. The crew had so much trouble with it that they called it Flaws rather than Jaws. (laughs) Spielberg called it the Great White Turd. You know, you mentioned the first day the model shark was used, it sank to the bottom of the ocean. This is the really interesting part, okay? The fact that the shark did not work caused them to have to get creative. Yeah. So originally, the scene at the beginning with Susan Backlinney, they were going to have a shark that you could see attacking her. Couldn't get it to work. And so they said, well, that's all right. We'll just pull on a rope a few times, drag her under the water, and she'll scream bloody murder, and it'll be effective. And it was. It was better. And they remember that lesson when it gets to Jurassic Park time because even in that first scene – where the dinosaur is attacking and you get the extreme close-up on Muldoon's teeth. (laughs) Even though you can see his tonsils, you do not see the dinosaur. (laughs) That's right. Okay, so at the beginning, we we did talk briefly about the the first kill, Susan Backlinney. When they were shooting the, the part of the dead body, they had a fake yeah, hand and they thought the fake hand looked right. The fake hand looked fake. They buried one of the assistant directors, buried her under the sand and just had her stick her hand out. So you've got a realistic looking hand. And once again, the what you can't see is more frightening than what you can see. And they do it so well because Brody is there with the teenager oh, right. and then the deputy is blowing his whistle in panic and <laughs> vomiting on the side of the dune there because of what he's looking at. And we don't see what he's looking at other than a few fingers coming out of the sand. Yep. But it, 
with that hidden image, we let our imaginations run wild on how gruesome this scene is that it's causing this deputy to panic like he is. Yep. Yep. It's brilliant. It is. Accidental brilliance once again. <laughs> also, one of the things that they did sort of out of necessity is they got a, a, a box that they made around the, the camera and they set yeah. the camera at water level, like what you would see if you're barely treading water. Spielberg wanted to give the audience the perception of being in the water, right? Because when are you the most scared of a shark? When your head is above the water and the rest of you is underneath the water, right? Where you you feel like you're vulnerable. If you're from the shore, if you just, you know, if everything's being filmed from the shore, you don't have that fear. But you've got you know, when you can't see your body, when you're out there and vulnerable, that's when you're most afraid. And so that's why he wanted that perspective. Super effective. So here's a couple of things I want to talk about. Ben Gardner's head. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the so what happens with Ben Gardner's head is Spielberg, when they're doing their previewing of the movie, there is such a reaction at that scene. And let's just talk about that scene for just a second, okay? Because you have this unbelievably brilliant sequence that begins with this high angle shot of Roy Scheider dropping fish entrails into the water as shark bait. And he's mad because they've been out there and they haven't seen the shark. And, you know, Shaw keeps kind of acting like he's his favorite, but he gets all the crap jobs, right? And so he's there and he's ticked off because he's having to do the grunt work and he's the freaking chief of police. I mean, this is, I can understand, right? (laughs) And this, I mean, let, let me just say this polite company you would say you know a contest but this entire movie is measuring i mean that's what the whole movie is about it's about the masculinity fights that go on between the mayor and brody and hooper and shaw and hooper and brody and all of those guys but he so he's ticked off that he's got to be shoveling these uh, fish guts out into the water and he says why don't you guys come down here and shovel some of this and just at the moment that you laugh, that you're just about to laugh, the shark's head comes out of the water and you swallow that laugh into a shriek. And you're like, oh, and that reaction, Spielberg said, okay, I got to get one more of those into this movie. And so that's where we get Ben Gardner's head, right? Right. So they didn't, you know, they filmed all of this footage in the ocean and then they're done, right? They're in post-production. They're they're editing, they're doing sound, they're doing stuff like that. And he wants to film an underwater scene again. Well, he's over at Verna Field's house and she's got a pool. And so they make a fake boat, they stick it in the pool and they dump milk into the pool to give it the murky effect. And it's perfect. It looks had, great. It's, it's fantastic. And that scene, man, you you're he's you are locked in just like he is at the size of that tooth, and then all of a sudden, boing, there's a head with one eyeball coming out. Spielberg said, "You only get one really great scare per movie, because from that point on, the audience was on guard." Yeah, the reaction to the shark was about half what it was before they put that scene. Yeah, in, after they put the scene in, because people were they were prepared for another scare. But, I mean, that is that is part of the joy of the movie is that tension that you feel. I mean, yes, the scares are great, but you know you're watching a great, scary movie if you are on edge. And if you've seen that head pop out, you're going to be on edge for the rest of the movie. Here's the other thing about that. When that shark makes an appearance, when he's like, hey, you can come down here and chum some of this. <laughs> the, sh- the shark appears, first of all, 
you get a great look at him for the first time in the entire movie, and yeah. you don't have John Williams' music training you to know that here he comes, right? So the right. entire movie, you see the fin, you get a perspective, and you hear the music, like dun, 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 dun. And it's like warning you, here he is, he's in the water, mm -hmm. he's close, he's coming. That moment, you don't get any of that. And so it's a complete no warning shock. music. Yeah. Yeah. So they when they originally filmed this one, Chief Brody has the most memorable line of the movie immediately after it, which was a Roy Scheider ad lib. It was totally him. It was not in the script. He stumbles backwards and he says, You're gonna need a bigger boat. And it is it's the best line in the movie. But the way they had initially filmed it. It, he delivered it almost immediately after the shark scene, after the shark's head pops off, and nobody heard it because everyone was still screaming from having seen the shark. <laughs> so they add they added like ten solid seconds of of film in between the shark popping up and him saying the line, just so that people didn't miss that awesome one. I've got three big things I really want to talk about. Okay. Okay. First thing is Lee Fierro slapping again and again and again Chief Brody. Yes, and God rest her soul, Lee Fierro. We are recording this in May. She passed away last month from the coronavirus. No way, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, sadness. Yeah, she just just passed away. And it was it, I read an interesting story today. You know, the actor who played her son, Alex Kittner, thirty years after the movie has been made, she wanders into a restaurant and sees on the menu the Alex Kittner sandwich. And she says to the waitress, she's like, oh, you know, I was in this movie. And he's, he's like, oh, really? What part did you play? She's like, actually, I played Alex's mom. And they're like, no way. And rush off. And, and just a few seconds later, the guy who played Alex comes out. He's the owner of the restaurant and he hasn't seen her in 30 years. And it's this fantastic coincidental reunion that they have. Very sweet. Yep. That's really cool. All right. So she had to slap him again and again and again. They did 17 takes of this, <laughs> yeah. right? She couldn't do a fake slap. <laughs> she couldn't do a fake. <laughs> so she hit him so hard, she knocked his glasses off a few times. <laughs> One time she broke character. She's like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And he's like, don't, don't be. Keep doing it. It'll be worth it. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, one of the most memorable scenes in the whole movie. Still, yeah. my boy is dead. And for, for the next 40 years, she'd have fans coming up to her and said, will you please slap me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I have kind of, I don't know, a kind of weird special affection for her because she was a community theater lady in a small town. And after this movie, she was a community theater lady in a small town. I mean, she'd teach acting in this little town and do small plays. But this was her one, you know, brush with stardom. And I, I encountered so many of those folks in acting. It is, it's just, yeah, when I read about her passing, it kind of hit my heartstrings a little bit. Yeah, that makes me sad. The next thing I want to talk about is Hooper, Quint, and Brody are on the boat. And yeah. there's a scene where they... Uh, shot a harpoon into the shark and they hooked it to the back of the boat and they were going to try and tire the shark out and the shark mm -hmm. runs and they actually jerks the boat and mm -hmm. in such a way that they sort of tumble and it, and it gives a real big pull on the boat, right? So right. they actually, to film this, they hooked up a speedboat and they screwed in a eyelet into the side of the boat and they hooked yep. to a pulley down on the bottom and they told the speedboat to take off and when it, when it pulled the slack... It jerked the boat, and it was really effective looking on screen, but they jerked a big hole in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> right. They had actually built two orcas. They, they, they had one that was supposed to be the boat that they use, and then they <laughs> had one that was supposed to be the boat that sinks. And then they do this little bit with the speedboat, pull a hole in the one 
that's not supposed to sink and it starts sinking dropping like the titanic i mean it's going down like a rock and Spielberg's yeah, yeah. on the on the speaker going get the actors off the boat get the actors off the boat but they yeah. had some high dollar sound equipment on the boat and uh, yeah. the sound guy's like f the actors get the sound <laughs> equipment Right. <laughs> Dreyfus is like, he's a 70 year old man. Go save him. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. They actually, they had some film footage that went into the water as well. And they're like, oh crap, it's ruined. Yeah. But as it turns out back in the seventies film was bathed in a saline solution and they sent it off to a film lab and not a bit of it was lost. Did not lose one frame. See, okay. This is the type of crap that I would do with my 20-year-old friends. Okay. Yeah, we're making a, a multi-million dollar movie, but I, I got a great idea. We'll just screw a big thing into the side of the boat and we'll send a speedboat off and jerk it. Oh, whoops. Pulled a hole in it. I mean, that's just dumb, stupid 20-year-old stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the last thing that I really, really feel like we need to talk about. Spielberg sent Ron and Valerie Taylor to Australia to film real great white sharks. And right. he said, we talked right, about so- them in our Talked about them in our last episode. They were the the spear fishermen turned documentary filmmakers that devoted their lives to catching footage of real great white sharks. Right. This is this is a super cool story. So they go down to Australia and they're looking around and they're like, hey, we've got great whites down here, but the biggest we got are like 15, 16 footers. Well, the the great white in the movie is supposed to be a 25 footer. So Spear right. was like, Well, why don't you get somebody that's super small and make the cage really small and that way the shark yeah. will look bigger right makes sense right okay so they drop this they find foot. a small man it's, it's a jockey he's like four foot six or something like that. a real small guy so yeah so he's come in and he's like i'll do it i'll do anything and they put him in there and he's in there with real sharks i mean yes they're only 12 feet but they're 12 feet yeah that's freaking huge i mean that's twice as big as a man i mean that's scary scary stuff especially if and you're four foot tall it's, it seems really big yeah. So uh, just just as an explanation, you've got a limited amount of air in your tank. And if you're scared, you use that air up way faster. <laughs> well, not only did they have to make the man smaller and the cage smaller, they had to make the tank smaller. So they've got this tiny man with this tiny tank in this very, very scary situation. And in like 15 minutes, he'd be like, I'm out of air. I'm out of air. <laughs> so they pull That's him it. out. They pull him out, and while he is on the boat, the shark gets entangled in the cage and proceeds to freak out and roll and destroy the cage and the lines. And while they're they're filming all this, and they're like, this yeah. is incredible shot right here. Yes, and, it's like it couldn't be any better, right? Right. Couldn't be any better unless the actor had been in the cage at the time. The cage was empty. And so for the script, the script called for Hooper to die at this point, right? Yeah. Hooper was supposed to die, but they've got this brilliant footage of an empty cage. And it's not like today where you can just computer digitally stick somebody back in there. And so what did Spielberg decide to do? He said, well, the shark's going to rewrite the script. Hooper is going to swim off and live. We cannot let this footage go unused. And you know what? It makes it to the movie and it's incredible. Yeah. And I'm glad that Hooper lives. I do. It would have been a bummer. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I just... Uh, maybe it's because that's what you know I've grown up with, but yeah, they've got to they've got to be paddling back to shore together, right? Yep. All right, so that's that's sort of what we got production wise on Jaws. Let's flip over to Jurassic Park. 
Jurassic Park started production August 24th, 1992 in Kauai. The scene that takes place in Montana was actually shot within a two-hour drive of L.A. It was in the Mojave Desert. Uh-huh. And it saved him 350 grand just shooting it that close to the studio. Nice. But most of it was shot in Kauai. While they were shooting, Spielberg was determined not to get behind schedule. So right. he had gone way over schedule with Jaws and, and some other movies that had kind of gotten away from him. And so he kept it to like four or five takes. And right. after four or five takes, he's like, oh, okay, we're moving on. And that right. kept everybody disciplined. They were moving so quickly that they got like the construction company that was building sets ahead of them. That guy yeah. says, we, we, we call it a success when we never see the crew. Well, there are several scenes where like there's a guy in the back like putting the finishing touches while they're getting ready to film a scene. So uh, back to Kauai for a second. All right. Yeah. So yep. I know that uh, we mentioned kind of in our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode that I had uh, recently taken a trip to Kauai. It's the most yes. beautiful place on earth. And and I, I loved it there. Right. I wish mm-hmm. I would have paid more attention to like shooting locations and stuff. I, I did see some stuff, but I, I think I could have seen more. I drove right yeah. by the spot where Dennis Nedry says, Dodson. Dodson, we've got Dodson here. <laughs> but uh, I, I was Nobody right cares. by that place. But Nobody I cares. Stop. Nobody cares. Don't get cheap on me, Dodson. But uh, <laughs> they built an elect- that, that giant fence, that giant electrical fence that Timmy gets zapped on. So that scene was shot like in Waimea Canyon, which seems strange to think, but it's like the second biggest canyon in the United States. And so they had to haul all this construction equipment to build this giant 40-foot fence. If you look closely at the screen, you can see the both edges of the fence. Like literally it's only 20 feet wide. Right. Um, <laughs> but these construction Why'd you climb over when you could have just walked around? Just walk around the edge of it. Yeah. <laughs> but they had to haul all this construction stuff like for days and days and days deep into the jungle to build mm-hmm. this humongous fence. The guys who built it were like, people do not understand the effort and time it took to build that sucker and right. make it look real and right and everything. And they, you know, got a couple of seeds. They're like, okay, moving on. I wonder how little is done on that side of things anymore. It seems like everything is digital, largely because of this movie now that it's not even like all those costs are cut because why build it when you can just generate a perfectly good looking one with a computer? As I mentioned before, I visited Kauai. And while I was there in 2016, I had several people mention to me Hurricane Aniki. Well, that happened in 1992 that actually happened on the last day of shooting for Jurassic Park. Throwback to our Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future episode. In case you haven't heard it, the pilot with the pet snake, Reggie Jacques. Tell us the Jacques, story. Jacques, who, he, he, Jacques, he, start he, the engine. And um, I had mentioned then, I didn't, I couldn't figure out why he wasn't in the rest of the movie. He seemed like such a great guy. And then he wasn't in any other movies. And I thought he did such a good job because it turns out he's not an actor. He is a pilot. He was the pilot that was helping them scout locations. They needed a pilot for the movie. And they said, Fred, would you like to be our pilot? And he said, sure. Sounds great. So fast forward 11 years and Hurricane Aniki comes in and they suddenly need to fly people out and the only guy who happens to be flying into a hurricane is Fred Sorensen, the guy who played Jacques in Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so this is a great story. I love this story. So Kathleen Kennedy, they're set up to shoot the last day of shooting it for Jurassic Park. It's a dead-on hit for Kauai. So they, the whole cast and crew go below ground for their hotel, 
and right. they waited out with every other person in flip-flops and swimsuits, right? <laughs> right. Jeff and, Goldblum describes it as terrifying and boring all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying and boring, and Richard Attenborough slept through the whole thing, and Spielberg's like, dude, yeah. how could you sleep through this? He's like, my dear boy, I survived the blitz. <laughs> so Hurricane and Nikki takes a turn north, and it's a dead hit for Kauai. They actually had one more day of shooting, which I found interesting. I was like, well, what were they going to shoot? They were going to shoot the Gallimimus herd. They originally were going to shoot that in Kauai. They later had to come back two weeks later and shoot it in Oahu because it, that hurricane had knocked down all the trees in Kauai. And they were going to shoot Mr. Arnold's death scene. The Raptors were going to get Samuel L. Jackson, and he was supposed to fly back. And they thought, well, no, we'll just throw a fake arm in there and we'll, we'll just move on. You know, Once the hurricane moved through, they realized it's complete devastation, but she's got to get all these people off the island. So she runs to the airport to see what's going on. When she gets there, she realizes there's nobody really getting in and out of here except for healthcare workers and people that are helping with the hurricane. And so she's weighing her options, trying to figure out how to, to, to work this out. And this guy comes up to her and says, hey, do you know who I am? And she turns around and looks at him. She's like, no. And he says, does the line, that's my pet snake Reggie, mean anything to you? And that's our guy, Fred freaking Sorensen there to rescue the crew of Jurassic Park. So when the T-Rex is attacking the car, of course you have the animatronic T-Rex and you have the, cue the kids, all right, kids scream. And Steven Spielberg would have a megaphone. He'd be like, rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> so He's doing all that and it, it made the, the cast crack up, right? Uh-huh. Have this gigantic animatronic T Rex, and you have Steven Spielberg's voice. Rawr! <laughs> okay, let's talk about the ending for Jurassic Park. Do you know about okay. the story? Well, I mean, I know that the ending was different. Like the, I mean, obviously John Hammond lives, and there wasn't this notion that the T Rex would come in and save them from the Raptors. Right. That was something that they came up when they realized how good the digital design was when they realized how good the CGI was, they rewrote the end of the movie. And not only did they do this awesome CGI, of course, with, and it's, uh, that may be the, the best. I mean, the, cause you don't have them even in the dark, like we, you can, you can fake a lot when something's in the dark, right? But this is a brightly lit room and they still, all of the dinosaurs look very real, very active, interacting with the skeleton, smashing it up. It's all awesome. And then you have that awesome, scene where the T-Rex roars and the giant banner comes floating down saying dinosaurs rule the earth. You just talking about that scene gives me chills. Like that's like my favorite scene in the entire movie where the Uh T-Rex like defeats the the velociraptors and like roars in victory. The T-Rex roar was a combination of a dog, a penguin, a tiger, an alligator, and an elephant. Well, whatever it is, it's awesome. Right. The I believe that the the raptors I think were dolphin and some other sound, yep. some sort of growling. Oh, a lion! I think it was like a mix between a dolphin and a lion of all things. I think it's like horny dolphins. Like they, it was. <laughs> Did you just say horny dolphins? Horny dolphins. I think they were like in the process of mating or something, and yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. hey could you could you play the dolphin sound for me no no no, no not, not that one the one where they're screwing can you play the one where they're screwing because that's what i need i think that's the perfect sound for a velociraptor <laughs> 
All right, that does it for this episode of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Please join us next week when we dive into part three. Dive. Did you catch that? Nice. Uh, Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> we dive into part three of the jaws versus jurassic park discussion i am so excited we're going to talk about soundtrack we're going to talk about character development we're going to talk about what happened in the aftermath of these movies and then we're going to give final judgment i can't wait to talk about the uss indianapolis scene we haven't talked about that yet i'm very very excited to talk about that as well should we sing should we sing the song Farewell and adieu to ye fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to ye ladies of Spain. And I don't know the rest, so you'll have to listen next time. (laughs) Hear how it goes when I sing it again. (laughs) That's good. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.